Amen. Thank you. Well, Tim was right. I don't really know what to say after that. But the exciting thing about it is that probably could end the service right here. Because that's what it's about. We're talking this, uh, I'm Lyndon, by the way. Um, we're talking about our core values. So I want to jump right in because my heart's full and I, I got lots here. <laughs> but it's in really big print, so we should be fine. Core value number nine, we value people. And long, I didn't think I was going to cry till later in the service, but now we've done that, we might as well just get it out of the way. We long to see them discover and believe in Jesus Christ. Thank you very much. That should do for the first half. We long to see them discover and believe in Jesus Christ, God's Son. We believe people matter to God, and therefore we will invest our resources, time and talents at home and throughout the world because people matter to us. That's at the core. That's at the core. So I'm going to ask you to join me as we kind of walk through Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15, if you're using one of the Pew Bibles, it's uh, number 874, I believe, or close to that. And I want to begin with a very interesting first two verses to me. Luke 15, verse 1 and 2 says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Jesus, him. And the Pharisees and the scribes were pumped. No, it says something different. They grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Oh, bad! What's wrong with what Jesus was doing? So Jesus responds by telling three stories, and I want to try and walk us through those three stories. As I said to Amy as we were talking about how to do this, it's like a tap dance. We won't be able to land too long. Story number one from Luke 15, verses 3 to 7. What man of you, Jesus said, this is how he responds. Hey, grumbling Pharisees, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he had lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he is founded, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. I can't help but think that Jesus was kind of going, 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Grumbling Pharisees, are you hearing that? I have a dog. And I am not a very good dog shepherd. At least not when it comes to our family dog. Rolo, if you can see up there, is our 14-year-old Lassa Apso Silky Terrier Cross. Now there is some discussion about whose dog this is. When we first bought her, she was my daughter Tegan's. Many of you know that my daughter Tegan got married this year. The dog still lives at my house. 
Now, she has some terrier in her, and especially in her earlier years, Rolo loved to chase. Sometimes it was squirrels. Sometimes it was rabbits. Sometimes it was squirrels that we said was there, but the, she didn't see him. We just said squirrel, and she was at the window. And then she'd come to the door, and she's pawing at the door, and there weren't a squirrel to be seen, but she thought there was one out there. That's Rolo. Now, our yard is fenced in, and for the most part, Rolo has been a very good dog. Stays at home. We've even forgot her outside sometimes, in the front yard. And about 25, 30 minutes later, we'll come, where's Rolo? And she'll be sitting at the front door, waiting to get let in. But on a few occasions, Rolo has become a crisis. Now, maybe I'm a little jaded, and maybe I'm a bit overconfident of her loyalty, but I have responded at times when Rolo was disappearing with these words. She'll be fine. She'll find her way back. And if she doesn't, we'll find another one just like her. <laughs> now, this one time, I think it was a rabbit that took off, and we had left the front door open, and Rolo saw the dog, and out the door she went. And I yelled with my biggest, don't you dare, voice. And her selective hearing kicked in. She ran to the end of the driveway, end of the cul-de-sac, and across Blue Jay Road, chasing rabbits. Cars going like this, back and forth. When I finally caught up to Rolo, I'm sorry to say I was not the good shepherd. I did not lay her on my shoulders rejoicing. I did pick her up and carry her back to the house, but I did not call my neighbors and say, rejoice with me. I have found my cute little doggy who was lost. A scolding we will go, a scolding we will go, all the way home. A boot in the rear, and then locked her in her kennel. Now, I have since apologized to her for this, and she licked my face saying everything was okay. I can learn a thing or two from the shepherd in this story that Jesus told. First of all, every sheep matters and is worth going after. Ninety-nine were left behind so that Jesus, shepherd in the story, could go after the one. And every search was worth not only going, but persevering in. And every rescue was worth celebrating. We did that this morning. Now, if the Pharisees were listening, and if they cared to listen, they would have quickly discovered that to Jesus, people matter. Especially those nasty sinners they were so bothered about. But if you look at the words of the shepherd in Jesus' story, there is a tiny little word here that almost escaped my view. Why would the shepherd care? The word is two, two letters, my. Rejoice with me, he said, for I have found my sheep that was lost, not the sheep that was lost. I found Rolo, the dog, or Rolo, my dog. To Jesus, it's mine. That sheep is worth pursuing because he is mine. Now in the scriptures, Apostle Paul wrote in Colossians 1, 15 and 16, he said, for Jesus is the image of the invisible God. It reflects this. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones 
or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Translation, all things, including those nasty sinners, were made through him and for him. Clearly, hey, grumbly Pharisees, in case you missed it, people matter to God. So Jesus goes on with a second story. Luke 15, verses 8 to 10. Or, what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me! Together her, pardon me, for I have found the coin that I have lost. Just so. I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. My children, my wife will tell you, I lose all sorts of things. How many of you can relate? Okay. My keys. See, the problem is I have too much stuff that I need to take care of. Last Tuesday night, I left my keys in the driver's side door. Promptly walked into my son's hockey practice. Walked out, where are my keys? Someone had pulled them out of the door, took them to the front office. There's your keys. What else have I lost? My phone. One time my phone was missing for so long, two weeks, that I finally decided to replace it. <laughs> Only to discover that it was in a compartment in my van that I had probably forgotten to check. Oh well, two phones are better than one anyway. My glasses. By the way, where are they? I have this thing. I walk out of the house and I'm checking pockets and everything. And I always do this and this because I need to know if my glasses are there. The problem is when I'm doing this and I do this and this, I'm just <laughs> demented. Something's wrong. <laughs> As you can see, I'm unloading things onto here. Ah, my ring. So last week I was refing hockey. Two weeks, three weeks ago I was refing hockey. And I did this. I took my ring off. And the reason I took my ring off is because when I'm fighting with these big guys to make sure they're not hurting each other and me, I don't want them ripping my ring. So fine, I took it off, put it in my, one of my seven pockets that I have in my shorts. Promptly went out, refed, put my shorts back on after the game, went home, went to sleep, and the next day flew out to Edmonton wearing the same shorts. Sitting in the plane thinking about, you know, this is great, I'm going to see family, miss my wife, miss my family, and I go, where's my ring? So I'm sitting in the plane, so I'm figuring, well, it's probably caught in one of the pockets there, so I'm sort of doing this kind of thing while I've still got my seatbelt on, and, and I'm, I'm getting, and there's no ring. I didn't want to disturb my wife. I didn't want her to get worried that I lost my wedding ring, so I didn't tell her until I got back. Needless to say, when I came home and I asked her, I said, "Honey, have you seen my ring? Oh, yeah, it's on our dresser. Now, what was she wondering? Why did he leave his ring when he's traveling? I assure you, I assure you, it was an honest mistake. But I lose stuff. I lose stuff. When I lose things, folks, I search for them diligently, and you probably do too. Why? Because for some reason, those particular things are really important to me. And once again, Jesus wants to make a point here. He is making his message clear to Mr. Grumbly Pants and all his friends that are watching. People, even those lowly sinners you're talking about, are worth a very diligent search. 
Why? They are worth my effort, my time, my love, because they were made through me and for me, Jesus said. Clearly, people matter to Jesus, to God. So by now you're probably wondering, well, why were the Pharisees so bothered by Jesus hanging out with sinners? And if you weren't wondering, I'm going to tell you anyway. Some fast facts about Pharisees. I forgot how to spell. The Pharisees were a sect that seemed to have started after the Jewish exile. They opposed the rule of Herod and the Romans that they were under, and they stoutly upheld the theocracy or God as king, and they possessed great influence amongst commoners. They also held strenuously to the expectation of a Messiah. The word on the street was that this Jesus guy might be claiming to be that guy. And thus they were watching him very carefully. He definitely was not their idea of what a Messiah would look like. Those Pharisees were deeply committed to the Old Testament law, as well as the oral traditions that had been passed down and the standards for, for how they should believe and live. They sought to be recognized and praised for their outward observance of outward forms of piety, such as ceremonial washings, fastings, prayers, alms, and they prided themselves on their fancied good works. Obviously, because of this, they were bitter enemies of Jesus and his cause. And Jesus will re rebuke them for their greed, for material gain, for their ambition for power, for their hollow reliance on outward works, and their love of outward piety that they used to gain popularity. So these Pharisees were basically saying, what kind of Messiah would not know that he needs to be holy and not hang out with sinners. There's a difference in values I see here. The Pharisees, they determined their value and the value of others based on performance. Do all the right things, follow the right script, look good on the outside, and by the way, make sure you get noticed doing it. Whereas Jesus, on the other hand, valued a person the way his father did. The third story. Luke 15. This is probably familiar to many of you. Please don't skim over it. Verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far-off country. And there, he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went, and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed his pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. What's on the menu? Not even pig slop. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I will no longer, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. 
Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. You ever been in that situation? Where you realize, man, I've messed this up. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned. I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe Put it on him and bring a ring on his hand, put, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead, and he is alive again. He was lost, and he is found. And they began to celebrate. Hey, Mr. Grumbly and all your friends, if you didn't get it after story one or story two, Jesus is making it abundantly clear that people, even lowly, despicable sinners, are welcomed by the Father. And Jesus is saying, they will be welcomed by me too. Why? Because they were made through me, Jesus says, and for me. And then about four chapters later, just in case we missed it, there's a little story in verse chapter 19 about Zacchaeus. So as to emphasize it, Jesus, again, in a different circumstance, stands before a group of people who were judging. In this case, a wee little guy named Zacchaeus wants to see Jesus so badly that it drives him up a tree. He is a chief tax collector and a rich one at that, probably in the eyes of the Pharisees, the very worst kind. And what do the Pharisees say? He's gone in and to be the guest of a man who is a sinner again. And how does Jesus respond? For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Translation, that's why he came. Jesus' purpose couldn't be any clearer. The lost were made through him and for him and he says, I have come. My purpose is to seek and to save the lost. Now, in all four circumstances, the three stories and the story of Zacchaeus, I want you to catch something here. And it's interesting because the songs that were chosen this morning indicated some of this. The main characters in these stories all initiated the search. The lost sheep, the shepherd left the 55, and pardon me, the 99 in the open field, and he goes after the one that is lost. The sheep didn't send out a 911. The lost coin, the woman lights a lamp, sweeps the house, and seeks diligently until she finds it. She initiates. The father, while he was still a long way off, he saw him. He was looking. 
He was watching. He ran and embraced and kissed him. And even Zacchaeus, Jesus goes to him and says, hurry, come on down, for I must stay at your house today. The picture here, we have a God who pursues the lost. Luke 19, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Folks, if you forget everything else to say today, I want you to remember that lost people matter to God. But please don't forget everything I say, because there's more. What does this have to do with me? Well, firstly, I want you to understand that each one of us play a starring role in each of these three stories. Oh, yeah, that's cool. I'd love to play the shepherd or maybe the woman. Well, maybe even the father. But the reality is we play three different roles. The sheep, the coin, and the son. Romans 3, 23 says it so clearly. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Because of our, my, sin, our independence, our desire to live life as the masters of our own destiny, we were lost. Ephesians 2, which is probably one of my favorite passages, puts it this way. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now I imagine the prodigal son, if he was a real character, he could relate to that. Because by all rights, this young man should be a child of wrath. I imagine him, when he finally comes to his senses, coming home, and some of the conversations he probably had with himself. And probably how he envisioned he was going to get responded to. What an embarrassment you are, son. You wanted me to give you what? Your share of our property? Are you kidding me? That was a pretty bold statement. And then, oh, well, sure, I, I gave in. I gave it to you. And then what did you do? You squandered my property. My property. <laughs> in reckless living, no less. At least, at least you could have lost it in a business deal. I mean, I would have understood that. But no. You, you, Mr. Smarty Pants, you have to experience life yourself. My word wasn't good enough. Now, every day, I see the new owners of that property who's just next door and they're prospering on that land that was once ours. Why? Well, you know why. Every day I'm reminded of what my idiot son did with my inheritance. You took everything I had and you wasted it with prostitutes, no doubt. What were you thinking? And what have you got to show for it? Nothing. Get out of my sight. Be gone. 
You're an embarrassment, and I never want to see you again. Seems to me like a just response, I suppose. And the son arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and earth before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son was dead and and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Folks, put yourself in 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 the... Shoes of the prodigal son. Because that's where we were. Even if you grew up in a Christian home. Because sin was on all of us. Ephesians 2, again, which is my, some of my life verses, says it this way. But God being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches, immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. From wrath to riches. And this is not your own doing. I'll say that again. And this is not your own doing. Lyndon, this is not your own doing. You cannot perform enough for me to give you this. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So I can just see the Pharisees listening to Jesus and hearing that story and I can just hear one word come out of their mouth. Scandalous! And they would be right. To understand compassionate outreach, I believe we need to understand the scandal of grace. We need to understand that that scandal has been applied to us. Jesus came to seek and to save us. For this son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. John 1.12 says this, to all who receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. That is our identity. That is who we are. 
We are, because of Jesus and because of the love of the Father, a son or daughter of this scandalous God who is rich in mercy and whose grace is immeasurable. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. To understand compassionate outreach, we've got to start understanding, first of all, who we are and what's been done for us. Because of the Father, we are his workmanship. He and only he, the Father, determines our worth. Okay? So now you're saying, well, get on to the compassionate outreach part. I almost missed it when I was reading this story. I was trying to figure out some stuff, and I was reading, 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 and then all of a sudden it just dawned on me. The Father gave the Son a gift. In fact, three gifts plus a party. What were the gifts? A robe, some sandals, and a ring. The robe was a symbol that the son was welcomed back as a son. The shoes or the sandals were an indication that his request to just be a servant was absolutely 100% totally unacceptable to the father. Because servants went barefoot. Sons wore sandals. But the ring... The ring. Not my precious. <laughs> the ring was a symbol of authority. Whoever had such a ring had authority. The authority of his master. The authority to make decisions and to help the master govern his realm. So when the father places this ring on the hand of his son, he not only welcomes him back home as a son, but he welcomes him back to the responsibility and authority that he had before he fell. Fully restored. What does that mean for us? As sons and daughters of the scandalous God who is rich in mercy and whose grace is immeasurable, we are invited to join him in the work of his kingdom. It's a calling. Our identity, restored by the Father, leads us to a calling. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. We've been talking about that. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from who? From God. Who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. For many of us who've grown up in the church, folks, that's a heavy. Go and tell your friends about Jesus and how they're, you know, instead it's like, this is what Jesus has done in my life. And now, He's asked me to come with him and be a part. That is, Christ God, pardon me, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he entrusted to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. As sons and daughters of the scandalous God who is rich in mercy and whose grace is immeasurable, we have... His authority, 
We are his ambassadors. We are his representatives on this earth. He has given us the ministry of reconciliation. There's a book that's been helping me a long ways in this conversation that I'm having with myself. It's called A Field Guide for Everyday Mission by a gentleman named Bob Roberts. Who names your kid Robert Roberts? But he did. I highly recommend you read it. He says this, God doesn't change our identity so that we can hide away from the world and wait for eternity. No. In our conversion, God changes our identity and our identity impacts our roles and changes our actions. The gospel is not just for the purpose of individual reconciliation. The gospel does not just call each of us out of our old identity. The gospel also calls us to participate in God's reconciliation of all things. The gospel calls us to live out our new identity every day as his ambassador. Ephesians 2.10 said, for we are his workmanship. We said that. Created in Christ Jesus. For what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Full restoration means that we are given authority and a calling. I embrace my identity as a son or daughter of the scandalous God who is rich in mercy and whose grace is immeasurable. And I want to embrace with God's authority, the role that he has given me as his ambassador, his representative on this earth as a minister of reconciliation. So now what? Well, this is a whole series that we could preach for the whole summer. But I want to just give you four really quick practical thoughts as well as encouraging you to continue to ask the Lord and read the book that I recommended if you feel led. Four things. One, I tried to imagine what the son might have experienced after the celebration died down. Now, that's not written anywhere in Scripture. But I just imagined that he might have spent some time staring at his ring, trying to fathom what just happened here. You know, all the streamers are falling out of the sky, the balloons have all popped, and people are cleaning up, and he's sitting there reflecting on where his life was only a short time earlier. How his unworthiness was there and the lavish nature of what his father had just done. And I imagine him saying, I will never forget this day. And I will never forget who made this possible. When it comes to compassionate outreach, I encourage you to remember where you've come from. I was by nature an object of wrath, a child of wrath. And Jesus came to seek and to save me. This will help me and us to reach out as an act of gratefulness, as an act of worship, as an act of this is what I was called to do. And it will keep us from looking down upon those we are reaching out to. Folks, the Pharisees, they forgot. Lord forbid that we be that way. Remember where we've come from. Two, news travels fast. So people in the surrounding area, the family, friends, business associates, who would have known the story and probably would have either been at the party or heard about it, 
Many would have known, not just about the party, but they would have known about the son leaving. They would have known about the scandalous way that he left and the scandalous way he was treated when he returned. I imagine it would have been intimidating to actually live out that identity for the son. He's going to walk around wondering what people think about him. Oh, there's that guy. Do you see what a mess he made of his life? That son would need to remind himself that the only one whose opinion mattered was the one whose ring he was wearing. So when it comes to compassionate outreach, I want to ask us to remind ourselves often who we are and who we represent. That will give you confidence and will keep you from being overly concerned about what others think when you walk as an ambassador of Jesus Christ. But it will also remind us that if we're ambassadors of a scandalously merciful and gracious Father, then we probably need to be that way too. I would imagine, thirdly, that the Father probably would have given the Son authority and responsibility for a certain area. Represent me wherever I send you and do those things in the way I would do them. So when it comes to compassionate outreach, remember to represent the Father wherever he has placed you. You don't have to get on a plane and fly to Bongo Bongo land. Wherever you are, you are a representative of Jesus Christ. What an incredible privilege. When people see you, what a credible opportunity for them to go, man, I have never been treated with such incredible class and grace. Something about that. The way they treated me was almost scandalous. I didn't get what I deserved there. I have a hard time with that sometimes in restaurants and the service industry. I'm in a hurry. Come on. Get this done. I represent God there too. Number four. Because people would have recognized the son, they would probably be curious about what actually happened. They'd want a first-hand account of of, of maybe, you know, what happened before and, and then at the party and, and how your dad responded to you. Can you just tell me about that? Like, that must have been something crazy. Walking down the street, excuse me, aren't you, aren't you the guy whose dad restored you after you made such a huge mess of your life? Man, I wish I had a dad like that. Tell me about it. When it comes to compassionate outreach, tell your story. Tell the story of the scandalous God. So it's really not telling your story, it's telling his story through you. Share openly about the scandalous God who is rich in mercy and whose grace is immeasurable and who has given you your true identity and who offers the same to anyone who cares to receive it. For those who want to hear the story, 
That will be transformational. It's not our job to convince them. It's our job to point them to the Father. It's the job of the Holy Spirit to convince them. But they're watching. What an incredible privilege it is. Let's, let's pray together. Scandalous God, rich in mercy, the one who has grace that's immeasurable, we receive from you what you have done for us to make it possible for us to be identified as your children. We don't do that, Lord, with pride or a sense of self-confidence because of what we've done, but we receive what has been given to us freely out of your lavishness. Lord, we also receive from you in that identity the ring of authority that you give us to represent you in the same way you have treated us. Lord, not with stress and pressure, but as an act of worship to you. Lord, keep reminding us of how deep your love is for us and may that overflow in how we love others and how we tell our story. Lord, I pray that you would remove the guilt and shame that we put on ourselves sometimes when we feel like, oh, I haven't shared my faith or whatever. Instead, Lord, I pray that you would remind us of your forgiveness and Lord, again, that you would teach us to overflow with your love. Lord, I pray that because of that, you would transform the areas and the places we are at because of what you are doing. Lord, help us not to lose sight of this, but may it be a joy of our day to represent our scandalous, loving God. Lord, we thank you that you go with us and we pray as we go from here that, Lord, you would be honored for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. There may be some of you today who just feel like, man, I'd love to have prayer with somebody. If that's you, we're going to have people up front here that would love to pray with you. Um, I just want to say this. That's not an indication that somehow your life is falling apart. It's just an, an indication that you're saying, I need God in this situation of my life. So feel free to come. And uh, thank you for being here. If you're coming to the baptisms, 3 o'clock, Maple Bay, Cultus Lake. Look forward to seeing you then. Thanks, Joel. Uh, God's grace.